0: Good morning to everyone. It's good to be with you, uh, both those who are in person and those who are watching and listening online. Uh, Many of you I know, some of you I don't know, as Pastor Malachi mentioned, I'm Steve Doobie. Uh, My wife Jody and I have four kids. We've been members here at Trinity for about five or six years now. Once I preached at a good Friday service a few years ago, so this will be just my second time preaching at Trinity At one church where I preached twice back in Michigan, where I became a Christian, one sermon was way too short, one was way too long. This morning, you all can decide by majority vote which sort of experience you would like, and about 20 minutes in, please give me the signal as to which experience you're hoping for. A friend of mine is a pastor uh, at another church here in Phoenix. His kids are a little bit older than ours. And one day he was telling me about the trials and tribulations of parenting a teenage boy. A teenage boy trying to learn how to be a man, trying to learn how to interact with young women and so forth. My friend's son got mad at him one day and yelled at him, you have no idea what I'm going through right now. I'm pretty sure that my friend kept back his laughter in that moment. Apparently laughing at a kid's problems is not the best form of parenting. But this friend, this dad was thinking in the moment, son, you must realize that if I am a male human in his 30s, logically, I was once a male human in his teens, going through the same kind of stuff you are dealing with. Now, I bring that up to point out that when we human beings are really frustrated or down about something, we can spiral into thinking that there is no one else who understands the problem. And that, of course, isn't true, there's nothing that we experience that is absolutely unique to us and, or has never been experienced by someone else. But even if other people may have experience with the conditions of our life, have you ever thought, well, God certainly doesn't get it? God certainly doesn't understand the weaknesses and sorrows and anxieties that fallen human beings carry around week after week. Those might be passing thoughts in the moment, but they may also be indicative of an inaccurate view of God, a cynical view of God. And if we have an inaccurate or cynical view of God at this point, we can end up in a spiritually unhealthy place, not trusting God, not coming to him with our prayers, not having a way to faithfully endure the hard times that come to us in this life. Now, when people try to answer that question, does God understand, Sometimes they lean toward the idea that God in his very divine nature is subject to weakness and suffering like us. Or they might lean toward the idea that while God may have some notion of our weakness and suffering, he has no firsthand experience of it. But the Bible actually carves out a middle road between those two extremes. God in his divine nature, while he understands us, is not subject to weakness and suffering but God is the Father' Son and Holy Spirit and the Son <clears throat> whom we often call Jesus, took on flesh and blood 2,000 years ago so that God the Son, in his humanity has really had first-hand experience with our human weakness and grief and sorrow and distress. And in our passage this morning, Hebrews 2:14 to 18. We see that God the Son, Jesus, has done this for a specific purpose, or specific purposes, plural. In other words, Jesus didn't do this because we demand that he suffer. Instead, he did it because of a divine plan for our salvation. Because we needed to be rescued from our sin and rebellion against God and our estrangement from God. But, such is the goodness and mercy of God, that within his plan to rescue us, he gives us God the Son to be our Savior who does have firsthand experience of our human condition so that we have even more reason to trust Him and come near to Him in our weakness and sin. For the rest of the sermon, there are three main things I'd like to focus on in our passage. One is simply the fact that Jesus took on flesh and blood. Two, the purpose or purposes of Jesus taking on flesh and blood; Three, the practical implication of Jesus taking on flesh and blood. So the fact, the purpose, is the practical implication. If you will, read with me again Hebrews 2:14 to 18: Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted first the fact that Jesus did this what does this event or fact mean well to understand it it's important to take note that in Hebrews 1 this same Jesus is not just any person he is the true God the creator God just as much as the Father is the true Creator God. If you read Hebrews 1, you'll find that Jesus is described like a beam of light shining out from God and perfectly representing God the Father. He has everything the Father has and can represent Him. He's also described as the Creator God who laid the foundations of the world, created things wear out, but He remains eternally the same. So if you thought that only the Father was the true God, the Creator God, and Jesus was maybe a secondary figure, a lesser version of God, this passage corrects that idea. Jesus is truly and fully God, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. You can also look at verse 17 in our passage and see that Jesus has to be made like us in order to face trials and suffering, which implies that in his divine nature, he wasn't subject to that sort of thing. That means that when Jesus takes on flesh and blood, someone who is fully God, already fulfilled, never subject to any loss, never in need of anything, never bossed around by anyone else, that is the sort of person who freely and generously took upon himself a human nature for our salvation. The sort of person who needs nothing for himself, but takes pleasure in giving himself for others. You'll notice that in Hebrews 2.14, when Jesus takes upon himself a human nature, it's called flesh and blood. In other words, it's not a Terminator version of humanity. To be clear, he did remain divine and all-powerful when he took on a human nature, but his divine nature is distinct from his human nature. He's one person with two distinct natures. This means that his divine nature didn't make his human nature superhuman, His human nature could be described as ordinary flesh and blood. Subjected to the ordinary weaknesses and frailties of human life. You can see in verse 17 that Jesus was made like us, his brothers and sisters, in every way. Though as Hebrews 4 tells us, he never sinned. Throughout the history of the church, interpreters of the Bible have pointed out that Jesus took on a human nature that was Subjected to ordinary defects or weaknesses after the fall. To put it mildly, human experience was more pleasant before the fall. Before Adam and Eve sinned against God and led our race into rebellion against God, human life was not yet characterized by the loss and grief that we experience now. But Jesus willingly took upon himself a human nature after the fall, with all of that pain and hardship. In his humanity, he was not sinful. But in his humanity, he was still exposed to things like hunger, thirst, cold, grief, sorrow, fear, anxiety, loneliness. You might think that Jesus being fully God as well as fully human somehow canceled out his real experience of human grief and so forth. But that wasn't the case. It did mean that he could never sin, but it did not at all cancel out his experience of human grief and fear and so on. On the one hand, it's true that he was always led by the Holy Spirit, always filled with wisdom and faithfulness to his Father. On the other hand, it was always part of God's plan to let the Son, Jesus, have natural human desires, like the desire for physical well-being, the desire for food and water, the desire for companionship, and so on. And it was always part of the plan that Jesus would taste the bitterness of human trials in full. In fact, as we'll we'll talk about in a few minutes, our message, our passage this morning emphasizes that Jesus had to do this in order to fulfill his mission. We can see this played out in Jesus' life in the Gospels. When Jesus is in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan, he's been fasting for 40 days. He's genuinely experiencing hunger and weakness, and that is why Satan tries to get him to create bread to eat. In John 12, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He's talking about the coming hour of his death. Then he adds, but I have come for this hour. He feels the weight of what's coming and the anxiety it brings. In his human desires, he's not immune to pain or the anticipation of pain, but he doesn't back away from it. Something similar happened in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus was crucified. In that moment, Jesus takes his three closest disciples to be with him. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus began to be sorrowful and anxious. Those words are explicitly there. He even says that he is sorrowful to the point of death. In a commentary on this passage, one of the Reformers says, it's as if Jesus is already half dead on account of the weight he feels, anticipating both the bodily pain of the crucifixion and the mental pain bearing God's judgment for our sins. Not only that, but after Jesus asked those three disciples to stay with him, he finds that they fell asleep. And after that, one of the guys who spent three years with Jesus, Judas Iscariot, is the one who betrays him and hands him over to go to an unfair trial. So Jesus is facing bodily pain, mental pain, sorrow, anxiety, the abandonment of friends, fully God. And at the same time, fully human and fully connected to human experience. Yet we notice, as Hebrews 4 points out, Jesus never sins in these trials. An analogy might be helpful here. Imagine you've got a damaged tooth and you know you have to go to the dentist in a week for a root canal. My apologies if that is actually your life right now. I had no intention of triggering bad feelings in the midst of this sermon. Good dentists can actually make that happen without too much pain nowadays, but most people don't like the idea of a root canal. So let's go with this for a minute. Most people would have some fear or anxiety anticipating that appointment, but you can do one of two things. You can let the anxiety overwhelm your good judgment, and you can cancel the appointment, hoping the tooth will magically fix itself. That may not be a morally evil decision per se but still probably not going, to go, not going to end well. Or, you can feel the fear and anxiety, but stick to your good judgment and keep the appointment for your tooth and go get it fixed properly. Now, when Jesus was experiencing sorrow, fear, anxiety, he did the second thing. He stuck to his good judgment and remained faithful. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked the Father if he might avoid the cross. But he did not let his emotions overwhelm his good judgment. He stuck to his good judgment and submitted his human will to the plan of God so that he never sinned. But here's the thing about that. Instead of canceling out the experience of suffering, it actually made it harder. If you cancel the dentist appointment, if you push the eject button, you get relief from the anxiety. Your tooth will get worse. But at least the anxiety from the appointment goes away for a bit. But if you keep that appointment, you have to drink the cup of anxiety in full and persevere in the midst of it. Jesus didn't push the eject button. He persevered in the midst of the sadness, the fear, the anxiety. So instead of Jesus' unique sinlessness, distancing him from pain and grief, it actually confirms that he faced the full depth of pain and grief for our sake. One more thing about the fact that Jesus took on flesh and blood. It means that he is our brother. Look again at verse 17 in our passage. He had to be made like his brothers, brothers and sisters. So God the Son is our brother now? Well, if you look back a few verses in verses 11 and 12, you'll find a picture of Jesus standing in a big assembly before God the Father, Not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. God the Son has stooped so low by taking on human flesh that if we trust him, we have to regard him as our older brother. Just to be clear, the book of Hebrews is teaching us that the eternal Son who existed before the foundation of the world, who holds the universe in the palm of his hand and governs it, that person chose to become our older brother and is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We could think of a thousand ways that this should affect our daily life. We'll get to one shortly that Hebrews emphasizes in particular, that we should always come to him to receive mercy. But I'd like to highlight another one along the way here, and that is that we have strong reasons to trust that God is good in a world filled with evil and suffering. My daughter asked me the other day, Why didn't God make us like we're going to be in heaven? Built into that question is a sense that God first made humanity in such a way that we could be tempted by Satan and could sin and bring evil and destruction and suffering into the world. There's also the sense that when those who are saved by Christ arrive in heaven or in God's new creation after Christ returns, we will be confirmed in our righteousness and holiness so that we will never sin again. So if God is taking us there in the end, and if it's not necessarily a violation of our free choice to be unable to sin, why didn't God start us out that way and skip over the sin and sadness? There are some important and helpful points that I think we consider, we could consider there. But in response to my daughter's question, I'm not sure I know all the reasons God chose to do it this way, to bring the human race through a time of testing and difficulty. But I do know that we can trust a God who didn't exempt himself from the difficulty and instead took on flesh and blood to suffer for us. I hope that might help our faith in seasons of doubt and questioning. Moving on from the fact of Jesus taking on flesh and blood, let's look at the purpose or the purposes. The passage identifies a few, but if we step back, we can really see one big overarching purpose. He came to help us human beings that are called the children of Abraham. The writer specifies that Jesus didn't come to help the angels. That mission would have looked different. This mission is for helping Abraham's children who partake of flesh and blood. That's why Jesus himself partakes of flesh and blood. Remember that Abraham was the man of great faith early on in Genesis, and God promised that through Abraham he would bring a blessing to all the families of the earth. That promise finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus, and Abraham's children are those who trust in the promises of God, and ultimately trust in Jesus as God's appointed Savior. Abraham's children include all those who do this, whether they are ethnically Jewish people who follow Jesus or people of other ethnicities who follow Jesus, whom we often call Gentiles, like I imagine most of us here today. So that's the overarching purpose. Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to help Abraham's children who are flesh and blood. But we can break this down into some more specific purposes that show up here there are, s- are several of them and i'd like us to think about 3 and try to take them in the order that they appear in in the passage one is in verses 14 to 15 let's read that again since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that or in order that so we're getting to a purpose here through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So one purpose of Jesus taking on flesh and blood is to use death to destroy the power of death or the power, or, or the one having the power of death and to free us from the fear of death. Now to state the obvious death is what occurs when the human body stops functioning. According to scripture, after that occurs... The human soul or human spirit continues on. Human consciousness continues on. And ultimately, each person ends up either at peace in God's presence or cast out from God's presence and awaiting a final judgment for sin. Death was not an automatic part of the human condition. It was implemented as a consequence of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. It's a source of pain and sadness and angst for humanity. And Satan has used it to tyrannize people with his own destructive goals, which is why the author of Hebrews can call him the one who held the power of death. What's really shocking here is the way that Jesus is portrayed in relation to death. As God, of course, he's immortal. He could not die. As human, he could die and did die. But notice how Jesus relates to death. For us, death is something that happens to us. We can prepare for it and so forth, but Overall, we don't call the shots on how we relate to it. For Jesus, though, death is something he purposely uses like an instrument or weapon. He used death to destroy death and the devil who holds the power of death. That is just not normal. How would he use death to destroy death and the devil? Well, if we take into account the whole Bible's teaching on this topic, there seem to be two aspects to this. One, he used his own death to take away our sin and guilt, so that sin and death and Satan no longer have the final word over us. Two, he himself rose from the dead to triumph over death and Satan and to give us a share in his life and immortality. Again, that is not normal. He used death on purpose, and then went into the tomb and came out alive, I'm reminded of a show my wife and I used to watch with a highly trained military guy who becomes an ordinary citizen and then still likes to fight the bad guys. You know, the kind of plot that five million other shows also have. But this guy would sometimes go into a room or a building filled with tough guys and criminal masterminds and the camera wouldn't follow. The camera would stay outside and you would just hear huge noises and things breaking and guys getting flipped over tables. And then the main character would emerge from the building without a scratch on him and maybe just straighten his tie as he was walking away after taking everybody down. Well, with regard to Jesus, he certainly did experience physical and mental suffering. But then he went into a tomb near the city of Jerusalem. No camera followed. A stone was rolled over the opening of the tomb to close it up. No camera was there recording exactly what it looked like. But Jesus and death were in that tomb, and only one came out alive. To be clear, it's not as if Jesus merely made a strong impression on his followers so that by his influence in their lives, he somehow lives on in their hearts and memories. No, the gospel message is that his body was laid to rest in a tomb on a Friday in springtime about 1,990 years ago, and then in that same body, now immortal, on a Sunday, he got up and went out of the tomb to be seen and heard and touched even by other people. He triumphed over death so that by being connected to him, we could share in his life and victory. If you look back down at verse 15, you can see that this purpose of defeating the power of death and Satan has to do not only with the outward circumstances, but also with our inward approach or our thinking about the problem of death. Jesus took on flesh and blood not only to defeat Satan, but to liberate us from the inward fear of death. The fear of death is a common human experience. Of course, there may be some super tough people out there who will claim they've never ever been afraid of death. I'm inclined to think that they're either full of something that I won't name from the pulpit, or they haven't thought about it very much. Our culture is very skillful at diverting attention away from the reality of death. We have modern medicine that extends our lives. We have nursing homes so that we spend less time with those nearing death. We have graveyards that are situated away from our daily routines, and we have smartphones that provide a constant source of distraction. But death still shows up, and it's hard to think about because death involves, among other things, a disruption of our normal experience in our body. It involves going on to be conscious and operate without the normal connection to our body. And that's weird. It means going somewhere we've never been and leaving others behind. I actually do think I've known some people who aren't really afraid of death. But that hasn't come by ignoring it or just trying to be tough. It comes by letting the truth of Jesus' resurrection sink into our hearts over and over again. It comes by meditating on a passage like Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. And if you're interested, I would recommend meditating on 1 Corinthians 15 as well, especially verses 54 to 58, where Jesus has taken the victory and the sting from death so that when we serve him, we know that our lives are not in vain. One of the things that seems most frightening about death is that nobody goes and then comes back to tell us what to expect. But actually, to be accurate, almost nobody goes and comes back and tells us what to expect. Sometimes a student will say in one of my classes that we just can't know what's true about the life to come because no one's been there. No one is qualified to speak with authority on the matter. I try to say, well, what if someone died and then lived to tell the tale? In fact, that is Jesus, who didn't just stop breathing for 10 seconds and get revived by paramedics, but stayed in the grave three days and then walked out of his own volition and didn't just escape from death, but actually killed death on his way out and came back to inform us what to expect. If you turn from living contrary to God and turn toward Jesus to receive forgiveness and new life, what to expect is this. You will either A... Die before Jesus returns, but be content in his presence in heaven, awaiting his return and the resurrection of your body and the renewal of creation. Or, B, live until Jesus returns and then receive the resurrection body and enjoy the new creation in God's presence with all of his people. Obviously, death still happens, and we should be honest about how painful it is. It's unsettling, it separates us from loved ones. Thankfully, Scripture gives us resources to voice grief and sadness like the Psalms. But in his kindness toward us, God hasn't left us without hope in the face of death. It's because of our sin that death came into human existence in the first place, but God still chose to deliver us from the fear of death. That's one purpose of Jesus taking on flesh and blood, and it's worth meditating on in the middle of a pandemic and any other time we're dealing with death. Another purpose behind Jesus taking on flesh and blood can be found in verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, getting to a purpose, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So one of the purposes of Jesus taking on flesh and blood was for him to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Remember that a high priest is a figure who mediates between God and the people. The Old Testament priests had special access to God and would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people so that their sins could be taken away. In the New Testament, and especially in Hebrews, Jesus is the high priest and the mediator between God and his people, This verse says that Jesus had to become a merciful high priest. Of course, as God, Jesus was already full of the perfect goodness of God. He was already merciful in that sense. But there's something new that happens when Jesus becomes merciful in this passage. On the one hand, Jesus as God fully knew our human condition and was inclined to help us in our misery, which is what the attribute of mercy means. On the other hand, though, Jesus did not yet have first-hand experience of our weaknesses and griefs. He did not yet have that experience as a factor that moved him to pity us. And in that sense, he had to become a merciful high priest for us. There are actually a couple of places in Hebrews that mention this kind of development in Jesus' life. According to Hebrews 2.10, he was perfected through suffering. According to Hebrews 5.8, he learned what it was to obey the Father from the things that he suffered. It's not that Jesus didn't already know about suffering or obedience. It's not that he wasn't already inclined toward mercy. It's just that he didn't start out with a firsthand experience of suffering and obedience. So when it came to acquiring that firsthand experience, he had to be perfected through suffering and in that sense, become a merciful high priest. Among other things, this means that if you're a Christian, you have Jesus as your high priest, your mediator, in heaven at at God the Father's right hand, looking at you with a heart of mercy and love. Sitting in heaven right now, he remembers the trials of this life. He not only cares about you, but he's been there himself. In his excellent work on the book of Hebrews, the great Christian leader John Owen comments that Christ sees us fighting through the same storms he faced and is now provoked by the memory of his own suffering to give us help in our suffering. Finally, a third purpose of Jesus taking on flesh and blood. It's one that can also be found in verse 17. Right toward the end, it says, to make propitiation for the sins of people he took on flesh and blood and became a merciful and faithful high priest in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people propitiation is an unusual word in contemporary english but it simply means the satisfaction of god's wrath or god's condemnation of our sin let's be clear god isn't harmed by our sin he doesn't lose his temper but in his justice and holiness he despises evil He despises our arrogance and cruelty toward one another. So he doesn't accept sin. He doesn't permit it to go unpunished. Part of Jesus' mission then was to take upon himself the consequences of our sin and bear God's condemnation of sin on the cross. He did nothing wrong himself, but he shed his own blood for us and carried the judgment of God in our place. He never lost the love of his Father. In fact, he pleased the Father by being willing to lay down his life but he was painfully aware that he carried our guilt and had the terrifying judgment of God directed toward him on the cross. The upshot is our wrongdoing and rebellion against God has to be dealt with one way or another. Those who are not connected to Jesus as their high priest and mediator have to face God's condemnation for themselves. But those who are connected to Jesus have the assurance that he faced the condemnation for us and rose from the dead to offer his perfect mercy and forgiveness through faith in him. The practical implication. I'm cheating a little bit here because there's not really one place in this passage that calls us to action. The call to action is implicit everywhere and it's got different dimensions to it. But the thing I'd like to highlight here is simply this, come to Jesus. Verse 18 tells us that because he suffered while being tempted, he can help others who are being tempted. Now Jesus' experience of temptation was definitely different from ours. We have selfish desires in our hearts and can be led astray by them. Jesus never had those selfish desires. But he did have natural human desires for things like food, comfort, companionship, a longer life that he often had to deny. That means he knows the pain of fighting temptation and staying faithful to God. It also means that he has a heart of mercy toward anybody willing to come to him. For those who have been lax toward God and know you've been living contrary to God, you need to know that Christ has a heart of mercy toward anybody who comes to him. But you do have to come to him It doesn't suffice to have a general idea of God or to believe that there is a God who exists. That won't make you right with God because God has shown himself to us in a particular way in the person of Christ, who is the only one qualified to bring us forgiveness and make us right with God. The good news is that that Christ is full of mercy and ready to welcome everybody who turns from living contrary to God and puts their trust in him to be their savior. When you do that, you have God's forgiveness. You have new life with Christ. Going into a church building or listening online does not automatically make that happen. You have to intentionally turn toward Jesus and put your trust in him. After that, even if going into a church building doesn't automatically make you a Christian, putting your faith in Christ and becoming a Christian will lead you to be involved in a healthy church so that you can grow in following Christ. There are pastors and elders and dozens and dozens of church members here that would be happy to talk with you about that if you need some guidance. And then, for those who have already become Christians and are trying to walk the path of faithfulness, though very imperfectly as we all do, you need to remember Christ's heart is still full of mercy toward us. When you sin, He wants you to confess it quickly and ask Him for help to grow. If you're a genuine believer in Christ, when you commit a sin, you haven't lost the love of God, but you need to turn back quickly so that you can be spiritually healthy. Let's turn from sin quickly and receive Christ's mercy so that we can have the rich joy that He offers us. Along with Hebrews 2, listen to what Hebrews 4 says says about this and we'll close with this since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every <clears throat> but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin Let us then with confidence draw nearer to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray.